Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have questions from our listeners on reading Romans. So Scott, you have a new book coming out on reading rat Romans backwards. Um, we're going to get into some of this and the concepts that you discuss, but could you just give us a little bit of a download on why this book, um, what it is that is your big thesis, the big picture that you're trying to help people understand, and why you wrote this book? Well, the, the major thesis is that people read Romans as if they are reading abstract, systematic thought on, let's say, justification by faith or soteriology. And while we can derive a theology of of our doctrine of salvation, or we can understand justification by faith by studying the book of Romans and what Paul believed, the letter itself was not written as an abstract theology for eight chapters with a little bit of providential history in chapters 9 through 11, and then a little bit of practical stuff on the side, chapters 12 through 16. I believe that, I'm along, and I'm not alone in this, I believe that Romans 12 through 16 gives plenty of insight about the churches in Rome and why Paul wrote the letter and the tensions at work there. And that, I'll say it this way too. There is more about the background to the churches in Rome through the letters of, of through the letter to the Romans in chapters 12 through 16 than any letter Paul wrote. This is pretty much direct talking about what's going on in the churches there. And once we study chapters 12 through 16 carefully, we come to the conclusion that we know quite a bit of the kind of tensions involved, say, between the strong and the weak, or even, say, between some Christians in Rome and the Roman government, chapter 13, 1 through 6, 1 through 7, that we should be reading chapters 1 through 8 and 1 through 11 through the lens of chapters 12 through 16 to see the kind of thing that Paul was actually saying in those earlier chapters. Now, it's interesting, Chaz. I've gotten several letters from professors and pastors recent, just recently in the last couple of days, that they have long been convinced that we should take chapters 12 through 16 more into consideration. Mm -hmm. And one pr person taught, uh, I think a Christian college, I'm not sure, didn't exactly say, for many years, and he always began with a the class with by studying chapters 12 through 16. So I'm, I'm encouraged by the kinds of things I'm hearing. And uh, I just got a nice letter today from Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, uh, that he said about my book, well done, Scott. So, well, that's always a, an encouragement a, to get a well done from Tom Wright. Yeah. <laughs> so that's so cool. Yeah, that's funny. Actually, the undergrad Romans class that I took at Ozark, we we approached it that way. We actually um, started with the end in mind, and you, know, you you obviously do such a good job with that. And reading Romans backwards, it's coming out through Baylor Press, and it's soon. It's next month, right? That well, it comes out. I got yesterday in the mail 
I got a copy. Okay. Uh, so um, it is now, uh, here's what happens. It's been uh, a couple copies were sent from the printer directly to Baylor and Baylor sent me one of those. So then they mail them to Baylor and then Baylor sends them out to Amazon, et cetera. So it, um, it should start trickling into bookstores probably in about two weeks. Okay, good. Well, I'll, if anyone's interested to make sure you get it the day it comes out, I'll include a link to where you can pre-order it on Amazon or wherever you, you get your books in the show notes. But Scott and I also did a webinar uh, earlier this year on reading Robins backwards. And um, we got a number of questions that we weren't able to get to in the webinar. And so I've got some of those queued up for Scott here that we're going to get to. Um, but before we do that, I wanted to let you know about another opportunity. That webinar was so popular, we are going to do another one that is going to have a similar theme, but a different take. And we'll be looking at the five advantages that there is to um, teaching and reading Romans backwards, because uh, Scott, as I know you've heard time after time, so many pastors are intimidated to preach Romans now yeah. at this point. And part of it's due to all the massive scholarship, different perspectives, and all of that. But there's probably no more important text um, that, given our time and culture and place that the church is in the midst of that, um, that Romans has so many important things to say. So um, we have a webinar we'd love to have you join. That's going to be on Monday, June 24th at 1 p.m. Central Time. And I'll include a registration link to that in the show notes as well. But we've got some questions to get to. Are you ready, Scott? Yep, I'm ready. All right, cool. The first one comes from Steve, and he asks, why would Paul not have made the distinction between the weak and the strong more explicit at the start if it indeed is the thorough line of the letter? Well, he didn't, so we have to deal with that. Um and I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, that, um, that we have to drive this too hard. But once you know the context of chapters 14 to 15, you begin to see things in chapters 1 through 8 that you otherwise would not see. So here's what happened. When Paul wrote his letters, he did not set out a description of his audience so that he could write his letter the way we do contextual analysis in our world today. Say we're going to study family in Ephesians 5 and the household codes. We'd, we might start out our lecture with 15 minutes on families in the Greco-Roman and Jewish worlds. Paul's audiences knew the problems, knew the issues when he wrote the letter. So when they got the letter, they were living in the middle of Romans 12 through 16, especially 14 through 15, some of 13, and no doubt some of 12 as well, and especially chapter 16. They're living in the middle of that. So they hear stuff. And so when uh, Peter Oakes wrote his book, Reading Romans in Pompeii, and he uh, had an imaginative chapter on what it was like to be a slave girl and hear the book of Romans or, or a chapter in the book of Romans, um, she would have heard those things. But Paul didn't say, now, slave girls, I want you to understand that this is what you're going to hear. So when that stuff comes up, I want you to be ready. No, they lived in that world. So they immediately resonated. And furthermore, the letter reader 
Phoebe, I think it was, um, I believe the letter reader would clearly have set some context and said some things and answered questions from the very beginning in light of what Paul said in chapters 12 through 16. So overall, I think that Paul doesn't need to do that sort of thing. Uh, it is us or we in our reading of Romans that miss this because, and I've said this uh, before, Chaz, uh, we we get worn out by the time we get to chapter 12. Many people get worn out by the time they get to chapter 6. And if 6 doesn't wear them out, 7 will. And 8 can be an upper. And then 9 through 11 is a tough uh, is tough snow to sled through. And so uh, 12 through 16 is sometimes simply forgotten. I, I have heard sermons my entire life on Romans. I grew up in a Paul church. We didn't call ourselves that. But our pastor talked about Romans, and he never talked about chapters 12 through 16. Mm -hmm. My youth pastor began a series of talks in our youth group on Wednesday nights on the book of Romans, and he never talked about chapters 12 through 16. In fact, he quit when he got through chapter 8. Yeah, I think that's a good point. We just simply get worn out, but we also need to realize, and like what you brought up about Phoebe likely being the um, letter reader, that was an incredibly important and significant role. And she would have been able to shade some of that from the instruction she likely received from Paul to um, to who was in those, those rooms that she was reading to. Yeah, it may very well have known that there were, let's just say, some people, they didn't walk around with hats on that said, I'm one of the weak, and the other one said, I'm one of the strong. They didn't walk around like that, but she could have looked mm -hmm. in the room, known who was who, and looked at him and said, this is for you. Yeah. So Brad actually asked a really good follow-up question to that. He says, I'm imagining Phoebe reading the sermon to them, reading the letter to them, and calling out people as weak and strong. How did these churches hold together with Paul's name-calling? That's a really good question. Um, okay. Um, name-calling, yeah. He calls these people weak, and that can— I think almost certainly cannot be a compliment. Although Robert Jewett in his wonderful monster commentary talks about or shows how the word weak at times, very rarely, but at times was picked up as a compliment. But when you write something and you call people strong and you call other people weak and you sort of identify with the strong, you are not complimenting the weak. All right. So number one, it was there was some name calling here. Number two, Paul believed that both the weak and the strong were wrong in some ways, maybe right in other ways, of course, but he has to call out things that he thinks are wrong. A third observation would be this. It was customary in the ancient world to be pretty polemical and apologetical in your public speaking and in your public writing, and therefore in a letter like this. It would it would not have been good not to be frank. That's the Greek word. The Greek word is parousia. We translate as boldness. It would have been common in that world if you were a, a first century Christian and you were in trouble and you knew a letter was coming from Paul or you were having troubles in your church and you knew a letter from Paul was coming and you had heard some rumors about things that he had taught. You knew he would have climbed on people 
who were not doing things right. So uh, I don't think I don't think the strong liked it. I don't think the weak liked it. And I think Paul was quite happy that they both didn't like it, that maybe they would grow through this. Yeah. Yeah, that's and I mean, obviously they did if, if the the churches in Rome continued to grow and faced opposition in many ways, but had a huge influence in the society. So um, this is taking a little bit of a different angle, but um, it is in understanding some of the different um, perspectives that people interpret interpret Paul from and speculate where he may have been coming from. And Phil asked the question, can you explain the position of the Paul within Judaism adherents? Where would you locate your views in relation to them? Well, um, the Paul within Judaism view is not really uh, a part of my project here. And uh, I avoided the conversations with all those methods and approaches. But by and large, some of the people think that Paul um, has written this letter for Jews uh, who are connected to the synagogue. Some people think Paul never left Judaism and that he's writing, say, to uh, Judaizing, if I can use that expression here, um, God-fearers or proselytes. Uh, so uh, the Paul within Judaism would say that there is not so much of a break between Christianity and Judaism as the so the other end would be the su- the strong supersessionists. So uh, my approach is not Paul within Judaism. I I approach Paul as having made a decisive break with Judaism over the um, over two things particularly is that Jesus is the Messiah that they believed in, and one must believe in him for redemption. And the second side is I don't believe that Paul thought. The Christians needed to follow the law, that there was a certain freedom uh, with respect to uh, Torah observance, and that while Paul may have followed the law at times, and the Jewish believers followed the law, um, and maybe at times they didn't, and I think clearly uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23 expresses uh, a flexibility that probably would not have sat well with the weak in in the city of Rome. So some of the Christians in Rome believe you should follow Torah observance and the Gentiles could should come along with Torah observance and convert completely. And the strong did not believe they should do that. Paul jumps in here and leans toward the strong and criticizes the weak for cutting up the church into Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Got it. That I mean, yeah, that's that's really important in understanding, you know, what Paul's perspective and approach is. Um, Gordon asks, uh, I mean, this is so much centered around how we understand Israel and how, what Paul describes Israel. And so he says, how does Romans 11, 25 through 26 
which reads, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters. This is the NIV, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. So his question is, how does this passage in Romans fit with the purpose of Romans altogether? Well, this is a this is one of those uh, interpretive issues that leads to all kinds of debate. So there's no there is a quick answer, uh, but there is no easy solution. Uh, it's a process. I believe that all Israel here refers to the Jewish people of God who have been who are believers in Jesus who have believed in the Messiah and who now incorporate Gentiles who believe in the Messiah. So I don't think that this is exclusively Jewish. I don't think that this is the elimination of Judaism or the elimination of Jewish believers into some kind of uh, metaphor just for the church, um, apart from its Jewish heritage. So. Romans 9 through 11, when read carefully as a narrative that shows the surprising work of God as how he works with Israel to expand it, to include the Gentiles on the basis of faith in the Messiah, in faith, faith in Jesus, uh, that I would take to be all Israel. But there are there are a number of views here, and this is a hotly contested text. Sure. That was a pretty good way to sum up where you're at. And certainly, like you said, there's a number of people who take different routes. But, um, you know, keeping Romans 9 through 11 in mind is is what is essential. So I think we got time for about one more question here. And um, we'll wrap up with this, which also probably... We'll have some things that you can say from your translating of the Second Testament, but Ricardo asks, what is your position on Dikaiosune? Okay, so he's asking the meaning of the word righteousness, and what is my position? Um, I haven't um, sat out and said, uh, here are the eight positions, and this is where I fit. This is the one, I see the word righteousness describing... Uh, let's say, an attribute of God and the way God works in the world and the way God will make things right. So I translate the word dikaiosune as rightness. I think the word righteousness gets to be a little too individualistic and moral and ethical. Uh, I think that's a, a part of it. So God's rightness is to make the world right through the rightness of his son whose work on the cross redeems us from our sins and makes us right with God and making us right with God through the power of the spirit turns us into rightness agents in the world. And so righteousness or rightness or dikaiosune describes who God is, how God works, what God has done in the Messiah, 
and the transforming work of God's work in the Messiah through the Spirit to make us agents of rightness in the world. Yeah, which is, I, w- I think, I would say Paul's hope and desire to see happen in the church in Rome, right? Yeah, and, and for Paul, uh, rightness would would include, especially, and this is a big issue between uh, what is sometimes called the old perspective and the new perspective, um, uh, that, that Paul thinks rightness involves the incorporation of Gentiles into the people of God so that they are the right people of God who are living rightness in the world. They are right. They are to live a right life. Um, so this, uh, E.P. Sanders said we should translate this uh, righteousing or um, right wisening, something like that. And I, I like the word right. I think that's exactly the word that we should be using when we translate the word Dikaio or Dikaiosune, and in their Hebrew background in Tzedek, etc., Tzedekah, I think that that's the right word. But um, we have turned it exclusively in some forms, in some groups, into a forensic declaration by the Father in light of the Son's uh, obedience to the law that is then imputed to us. I think that uh, some of that can be seen as a dimension, but it's bigger than that, and it's better than that. And any kind of declaration that doesn't end up in transformation is an inadequate conception of what rightness or dikaiosune means in the Bible. Yeah, well, that's that's good. I don't think there's anything better that we could end on on that because it does always have to come back to transformation because um, it sure seems clear that that is Paul's intention. So, well, thanks, Scott, for letting me just fire these questions at you. Yeah. Hope you listeners have uh, enjoyed this and found it helpful. Uh, we would love to have you join us again on Monday, June 24th at 1 p.m. Central Time for our webinar where we'll be digging into the five advantages that there is to teaching and preaching Romans back backwards. This is such an important concept and letter for the church of today to um, drop hold of and to be challenged by and to really take it, take take heed with it and let the kingdom take root in the way that it did in the Roman church in the first century. So thank you so much for joining us. Again, I'll include a link to those show notes um, so you can enjoy in that. And if you're not able to join us um, live on Monday, June 24th, or you're listening to this after that, um, go ahead and register and we'll make sure that you get a copy of that so you don't miss out. Um, but we're so grateful to have you join us today and we look forward to join have you join us next time as we continue the conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.